This is a Soulfire production. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and as always, so, so, so excited for today's episode. I've got my girlfriend, Shay, on the show, and she blows my mind when it comes to the work that therapists can do. Shay and I met through mutual friends a long time ago, have for whatever reason been on the same life path with the same experiences, same story. Honestly, talking to her is like looking in a mirror, except for the fact that I look up to her for so much. We dive into all things crisis intervention this episode, and it's really, really pertinent, really necessary, and a really awesome conversation that I wish more people would have or at least listen to. We talk about not being sick enough for help, why therapists need therapy, why we replay our trauma, and the fact that mental health doesn't discriminate. This episode was so cool, has so many awesome nuggets of information for you guys to take away, and gives you a little how-to at the end to help regulate your own nervous system. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Um, and my, all my research in grief and loss is in violent loss intervention, mm. which is like suicide, homicide, um, really violent like car accidents where someone loses their life, stuff like that. So when you are talking first and foremost, let's chat. What is crisis intervention? Because when you say like, right, we've all seen the show mm-hmm. intervention and I'm okay. sure that is <laughs> yes. not what you're talking about. Yeah. So what do you mean when you say crisis intervention work? So crisis intervention work, the way I did it um, specifically was with first responders. So I worked as a mental health um, crisis intervention specialist and I would respond with either law enforcement or like emergency medical services or even on our own. Um, I worked building a program where we could dispatch clinicians in the place of law enforcement if um, there was no safety concern or immediate safety concern. So there were cases where it was more appropriate for a counselor to respond um, to provide the least kind of, I don't want to say like aggressive intervention, but the least restrictive intervention, right? We don't show up with any weapons, handcuffs, lights and sirens. We go in unmarked cars and we would provide mental health intervention to individuals who needed it in order to keep them in the least restrictive environment. So the most restrictive environment would be something like jail or psychiatric hospital, Mm -hmm. the least restrictive being their home or remaining in the community, wherever that may be. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's huge because that, that was so something that A is needed, Mm -hmm. but B with everything that we saw happen in 2020, right? George Floyd and all of these things, it immediately like you couldn't get away from it. You couldn't mm-hmm. get away. It was no longer like, oh, a one-off police brutality kind of thing. I think that 2020 gave, everyone was at home. Everyone mm-hmm. was in front of the news. All eyes were on everything. And it really started bubbling this up to the surface. There were so many like special task forces and these different things. So yeah. what was kind of the precursor or what got you into launching this program? So I actually, when I was doing my master's, I completed my master's internship at a psychiatric state hospital doing primarily forensic work. So I was doing forensic competency restoration. Um, I did it with all age ranges and kind of all different walks of life. I did it with all different presenting psychiatric disorders, um, like something like depression, all the way to schizophrenia. I worked with all populations but we were all doing forensic competency restoration, meaning that at the time of the crime, this individual didn't know the difference between right or wrong. Mm. And I was trying to help regulate them on medications with treatment. Um, So like different psychological interventions, group therapy, stuff like that, but also kind of helping them within the legal system. And it was wonderful, super rewarding. But at the end of the day, I was like, there's something wrong with the system itself. Mm. Why everyone in here was like not able to be heard while they were in the community. So now they've been arrested. They might've been in prison or jail for like who knows how many months. Now they're at a psychiatric hospital. They keep getting bounced and bounced all while trying to get their needs met. And a lot of times those needs probably could have been met within the community without that intervention, um, specifically law enforcement intervention, right? These individuals probably didn't need to be placed under arrest. Not that 
there aren't individuals who do absolutely need that kind of intervention. Some people are dangerous to themselves or to others. And there's like value in that and having that specific training. But a lot of times having a counselor come in and kind of talk with them and redirect, you can keep that person in the community. And then Mm -hmm. officers can kind of do what they need to do and counselors can do what they're trained to do. Yeah. So were you on the kind of ground floor of launching this this program? (laughs) Um, Part of it. So part of the program, there's a program in Oregon called Cahoots or In Cahoots where counselors are paired with um, emergency service workers. I think that program's like 30 years old. Wow. And so it's been going on for a, a long time. Austin's is a little bit newer. And so I was in Austin at the time when I was doing this. So Austin's is a little bit newer, but they implemented a new program that I was like really like on the ground floor running with it, where we put counselors in the call center, the 911 dispatch center, and had them fielding calls mm. to see if counselors could um, provide some kind of intervention before law enforcement was necessary, right? And so we could actually send counselors to the scene instead of law enforcement or say, oh, this needs to be a co-response. Let's have counselors and officers meet because there might be a safety risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously if the scene is cleared, then officers can leave or EMS can leave. Counselors can stay on site and um, connect people within the community or really kind of do what people need like in that moment, which is a whole slew of things. There's like housing concerns, Um, like basic hierarchy of need concerns, like food, shelter, stuff like that. But it could be as simple as like, I can't get to my medication. Like, I don't know how to get there. I don't know where it is. And so we'll find ways to provide them transport or we'll pick it up and deliver it. Yeah. It's like, it's so something that strikes a chord with me. And I think a lot of people listening is, um, not being sick enough or not being unwell enough for treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in undergrad reading, have you ever read the book Righteous Dope Fiend? I don't think so. <laughs> so I love this book. I mean, it's, it's horrific, but basically it was, um, a photographer and a journalist go mm-hmm. and lived on like Skid Row. Okay. Um, and we're living amongst heroin addicts. And there, this book highlighted just like the hierarchy of needs, how the community, like everyone kind of like pushes mental health and addiction Mm -hmm. and these different things to the darkest, shadowiest corners of our society. And then we'll see like the one-off, right? Like Mm -hmm. the one guy that comes into the hospital and gets admitted and he's super sick. And this book really highlighted like how often people were trying to get help, Mm -hmm. how often people like oh yeah, I have this gnarly abscess from Mm -hmm. heroin, but they, I'm not close enough to dying yet that they won't let me into the hospital. Yeah. And you can tell me if I'm wrong here and I would love your clarification on it, but mental health is in my opinion, even a step lower than that. Oh yeah. It's exponentially worse. It's so much worse because you can't always see it. Right. And so like you can't really judge someone's presentation, especially if you don't have the clinical training. So a lot of people don't know what they're looking at. And a lot of people who are experiencing it don't really know what they're looking at because their baseline, if we're looking at it, just say like you're just the average person, their baseline might be like, oh my God, that's so out of the normal for me. Like I couldn't imagine being there. But for that person, that's like solid baseline. They're very happy. They're content. They're whatever. And so you can't really just look at someone and understand what they're going through. And that person has to also be self-aware enough to know when they need treatment. And so by the time they get it, a lot of times it's really, really late. Mm -hmm. It's also really hard to get into treatment. So more often than not, beds are full. Like you can't get in even if you wanted to. You need some level of insurance. Sometimes you need an address. A lot of people don't have that even. They can't give you an address that they don't have a phone number. They can't contact the clinicians, especially during the pandemic, right? Like (laughs) how do we find these people? Um, how do we conduct therapy with them if we can't sit with them in person? Cause they don't have access to internet, like stuff like that, little stuff like that, that comes up. And so it's really hard to provide that treatment, but it's really hard for people to seek treatment because sometimes they're like, Oh, I'm still okay right now. I'm doing well enough. I'm surviving. Like, I don't know how to get to my meds, but I think I'm doing okay. But then they start kind of little by little, they feel a little bit worse. They start engaging in different behaviors and by the time I would go out with obviously like a crisis intervention team, they're at their worst moment. 
Yeah. Like someone had to call or they called themselves, which does happen. And they're like, I'm not safe with myself. Like whether that be due to deterioration, which is um, basically you're unable to make decisions for yourself um, due to your like state for whatever reason that may be. Um, or just like you're so deep into like whatever your illness symptoms are that you're not, um, which I hate to use the word normal, but you're not like functioning normally in society mm-hmm. and society panics when they see or hear anything to do with mental illness and so that's typically when you start receiving those services yeah why do you think society panics in that way oh god <laughs> so many reasons <laughs> I think there's just a lack of knowledge entirely um I think people are just out of sight out of mind right like as far back as when we used to call like state hospitals like institutions lock people up keep them out of sight like hopefully they get better but if not at least they're not like acting that way near me because it's scary. It's not familiar. Um, I People don't have to educate themselves if they don't want to. And so they don't. Like, right. why scare ourselves? Why think, oh, like that could happen to me? Or maybe I could have a kid who might end up needing some additional services. When in reality, I would say about a third of people in the world probably get some kind of treatment or like need treatment at some point in their lives, but probably closer to 50% really truly could be using services. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so funny. I was talking to a friend the other day and they were like going to therapy for the first time. And they were like, what would you ask your therapist? And I was like, I'd ask my therapist if they go to therapy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. She, she looked at me like I was like, I just said the most absurd thing she'd ever heard. Yeah. And I was like, no, because first and foremost, we do not have all the answers. Yeah. Second, the amount of trauma and mm-hmm. shit that we mm-hmm. empathically hold yeah. on, right? We're a bunch of wounded healers running around yes. here. So we hold on to all that. And if your therapist is not in therapy, mm-hmm. I might well, seek another therapist. Absolutely. Right. And I always joke, I'm like, I would be the most masochistic person in the world <laughs> if I, one, didn't seek therapy because that would just be carrying so much pain and hurt from everyone else. But also, like, if I didn't have my own traumas and hadn't already worked through them, like, I wouldn't know how to carry that weight and it would be unbearable. Absolutely. It would be so heavy all the time. And so, yeah, I think that would be the first question I would ask a therapist. Right. And as a therapist, I'm also in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I need it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's, you know, that's just, here we are. We're mental health professionals. Yeah. And if you want to talk about the shame or stigma of, of the number, right, mm-hmm. like 50% of the world needs it, like. It's probably higher if 100% seemingly, solid. <laughs> seemingly healthy, like I said, yeah. mental health professionals are like, yeah, I go to therapy. Then, yeah, I would imagine that any average Joe can benefit from it. Yeah. And it's just nice to have someone who's completely unbiased, who's there for you to help you work through your inner thoughts. Like it could be work related. It could be family related. It could be as simple as like, I'm not happy for an unknown reason. And I think I just need like a backboard mm-hmm. where they're not going to be like, oh, you have nothing to be unhappy about. Mm. Like, or what makes you unhappy? It's like, well, I don't know. That's why I said, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I'm asking this question. <laughs> <laughs> and that is so much of what the medical system has done, I think. And this is just my, I had my own, uh, my listeners are probably rolling eyes because they've heard me talk about my, uh, disenchantment with with modern medicine Mm. um but I think that it's exactly that like I went recently to the doctor because I was like nothing's wrong but something could be better Mm -hmm. and my GP laughed at me they're like what (laughs) like your BMI is fine you work out you eat well you're good and then I went to a naturopath and she's like your gut is fucked up your mm-hmm. amino acid levels are all over the place. Let's do this, that, and the other thing. And it was like a, a seemingly well, healthy mm-hmm. person wanting to be better is like an anomaly in the yeah. medical system. And then even like I was saying before, a step further mm-hmm. when it's mental health, like you're saying, you don't see it. Yeah. It's not like I show up with this like gash wound that's exactly. open and bleeding that you can see. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm like, 
It would be wonderful if you could see it. Truly, it would make things a lot easier. But there's a lot of things with the medicine that we're finding out. And I like, I could rip apart medicine, truly. <laughs> there's a lot of things I don't like about the healthcare system. Um, but it is. It's like, like kind of like well checkups should be a thing. And it should also occur with mental health. Like, is there something that we need to dive a little bit deeper on? Like, what mm -hmm. is going on? And it could be something we're just not looking for on the surface, which we see a lot with, like, people who appear well, right? But the ones that you, like, in the news, you're like, oh, my God, they completed suicide. I never would have known. Right. And it's like, yeah, because we're not asking the questions. We're not encouraging people to talk about it. It's not, like, a fun conversation, but if you had any other illness, it's definitely a conversation to have, right? Totally. Like cancer. Everyone's like, what can I do? Can I bring you casseroles? Like, can I take you to your appointments? Whereas mental health, they're like, I don't know. It just seems like a lot. That's kind of heavy. <laughs> Is that contagious? Yeah. I don't want to be around you. <laughs> like, does that mean you're going to be really sad near me? Like, I don't know if I can carry that weight for you. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, but it's, I don't know. It's definitely an interesting system that healthcare has put in place where you show up you get a pill, you walk out, you feel better. No one really asks any questions anymore. No one really talks about it. No one really tries to uncover anything that might be underlying. And I think that's what mental health does. And I think that's a little bit scary to people as a whole. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love Nadine Burke and she's now the Surgeon General of California, mm -hmm. which is awesome. And she's made it, it's boggles my mind that things like this were not necessary or mandatory before but now with every kid's you know each mm -hmm. year when your kid has to go get their checkup to go to school and all these different things like they do an ACE score mm. and so now we have a whole generation mm -hmm. of children in California that are having adverse child adverse childhood experiences that's <laughs> yeah. ACE I was like wait so what's the acronym screened for yeah and as you and I know, and maybe you can tell if, if you're familiar with the ACE studies and everything else, mm -hmm. you can kind of share with listeners what that is. But now we are having an entire generation that's being screened for these things that we know affects their long-term health. Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy to me that we've had this information at our fingertips and no one's done anything with it. Yeah. Well, I think people don't want to know on like a really, really deep level that children are traumatized, right? It's always the kid in the back. They're like, oh... Like I currently work with um, like child protective services, adult protective services. And I hear all the time, oh, the kids don't know what's happening or the kids don't know what's that bad. Or like this is like they're recreating it, right? Stand tray play. Like we're doing stuff like that and they're recreating the scenes and the parents are like, I could never believe in a million years that my kids saw that. It's like, yeah. And they're going to carry that continuously. And all of the decisions they make in life are going to be impacted by that. And so it's, I mean, I love that. They're definitely not doing that in Texas. <laughs> they and, definitely were. Well, and it's like my, and I believe it to an extent because you can't be a helicopter parent either. But when people are like, kids are resilient. And it's like, yeah. if that's the case, then why are all of us adults just children walking around yeah. in an adult meat sack? <laughs> exactly. And why are we all like recreating situations and environments that like play out our childhood traumas constantly? Yeah. Like, we're repeating habits that we formed as kids. Like our brains were developing. It makes perfect sense that our brains would continue to have that on like, like a little tiny, like record player in the back that just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Yeah. So why does the record player repeat itself over and over and over again? Yeah, there's so many reasons. Um, I know you also love like the polyvagal theory and the trauma response and like how the body impacts it. And honestly, I wish I had more information on like neurological studies and like how that, um, truly like your brain development impacts like that kind of cycle. But I think you learn these habits, fight, flight, or freeze, right? And any kind of trigger, even happy triggers also can like, your body is not aware of whether it's like a bear or it's like stage fright. It's like, oh, I'm terrified right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to increase all these like neurochemicals. I'm going to flood the body. I'm going to do all these things. We're going to respond in the same way. And so whether or not we're consciously aware that we're repeating these cycles and these habits, our body's doing it because that's what it knows. And that's what it knows how to do. And it's doing it out of survival. The body wants to survive. And so it uses the skills it has. I like to think of like coping skills, for instance, especially in crisis. I'm like, this skill might've been really helpful at some point in your life. 
Like it might've been absolutely beneficial and the reason why you're here today, but that doesn't mean it's still helpful mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean we should continue using it, but like, let's find the value in it and then move with it and kind of use that to grow. Absolutely. So from, and obviously like without names or, or specific experience, um, from start to finish, you get that call at the, at, you know, the, the hotline or at 911. Mm-hmm. You dispatch as a mental health care worker, what happens? <laughs> it depends. So if we get all these like fun, super old school gadgets, or we did, um, you have like the walkie talkie, like the massive walkie talkie. <laughs> I'm imagining like, like go, go gadget. <laughs> yes. Go, go gadget arms. Well, and like, you came in with like the yeah. helicopter hat. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm, you like think, cause like all these like different first responders, they have all their gear in their cars and they wear these big massive utility belts and stuff. And here you have these like counselors who have like a notebook and like this walkie talkie and like a pager, like old school pager. Yes. And so we call in, we respond, like we see kind of um, like what the need is, if we can do any kind of services in the meantime on our way there. Fortunately, no lights or sirens. We're not in marked vehicles. So we would just show up when we got there, depending on traffic. Hopefully nothing escalated in the meantime. <laughs> and we arrive on scene, um, depending upon the clinician or the need, you kind of meet with the first responders and get a little bit of information. I anything they could give me was super helpful, like background age, um, presenting behavior before I walk in. Um, and then you meet with a client and it's kind of just therapy. You're like, yo, what's going on? Like, let's chat. Yeah. (laughs) And it seems really weird because you're there and you're surrounded by like crews sometimes of people and they're like, fix this. And you're like, well, it's not really how it works. Like, let me tell you (laughs) how many years of therapy this will take. And I'm just like, okay, so how do we keep you safe? Like my biggest concern is always safety. So I'm like, like any thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself or someone else or me, like, right, I could be the target and had been. (laughs) But it's like, are you having any thoughts of wanting to do these things? No, okay, then what's going on? Like, yeah, sometimes people are in a moment and then the whole crew arrives and like, wow, I really didn't need this. I was just in that moment. I really thought I needed help, but I really just need someone to talk to. So Mm. then- no like safety concerns. And when I was doing it, I was in Texas. So I was like, I know you have a gun. Is it like unloaded? Is it locked? (laughs) Am I going to have to find it? Like, tell me I'm safe. And they'd be like, yeah, it's whatever. So I would clear all of the crews from the scene and I would sit there and we would do kind of like a very brief, very solutions focused kind of intervention, figure out like what resources were needed, um, what next steps needed to happen on occasion. I'd be like, sounds like you need to go to a hospital sounds like you can't stay safe in the community um other times I'm like cool you're already connected to services like let's reach out to them or let's see if we can get you an appointment tomorrow we'll like stay there kind of make sure everything's fine like we really don't want to leave someone in the community that's high risk so like we call it like risk of harm Mm -hmm. so that could even be something like due to deterioration they're gonna like wander into the street because they're not like what's going on with their symptoms due to their mental illness they're just so disoriented or they're so in like, like delusional thinking, whatever it may be that they could inadvertently like harm themselves or someone else. And so connection, right? Very, very rarely we'd ask and be like, okay, this person needs to be placed on an emergency detention or in California, 5150, meaning that if they have the ability to check themselves out, they're probably going to do it and they'll complete whatever they're planning on completing. Mm -hmm. So you have to be pretty careful. But I did a lot of transports. Um, I would transport to emergency rooms if that's what was needed, to hospitals, um, kind of wherever was needed, really just depended on, or was depended, was dependent on like the situation. Everything was different every single time. I don't think I ever walked into the same scene twice and I did. I responded. I'm sure like people are thinking, wow, like you're responding like, oh, probably to like certain places like shelters or care facilities. I responded to places like Apple like I responded to jail, like, or to the, yeah, to the jails. We responded to schools. We responded really anywhere. You can name it like the wealthiest parts of the community. We were going like nothing was off limits. And we were just like, yeah, like mental health is across like all borders. So like race, ethnicity, gender, whatever. I'm like, we're going out there to meet you. Like, oh, yeah. And we did. Don't discriminate. <laughs> yeah. We were like, 
we're going to be out there with you 100% guaranteed every time. And yeah, we just provide that. And then we would provide follow-up or really because we're crisis, we don't, we didn't do long-term. Like our goal was to get you connected and not to be that connection, right? Because there is kind of a power differential in that work, a little bit different than like traditional therapy in that I'm, I am kind of coming and helping you and like, I wouldn't say rescuing, but like we're getting you out of this like really unsafe situation. And so we want you to have a lot of autonomy and go out and do this on your own and be able to like save yourself because people are capable of doing that. Like Mm -hmm. they just need the tools and resources, which are not provided (laughs) ever. (laughs) So our whole goal is to like, you can do this. How can we help you to do it? Mm -hmm. And then we would transfer them to whomever that really, and yeah, based on level of need. Where it would go. Yeah. I think that there's so much to be said that people don't even think about how traumatizing it can be to have lights and sirens and a stranger in your face asking you what you're doing and how much exactly what you're saying. Like I had fight, flight, freeze, fawn, whatever Mm -hmm. my response is that deploys. I don't get to fucking pick which one comes out. Yeah. Like I can look back at it after the fact and be like, I should have froze, (laughs) but my body told me to fight. Yeah. Right. And so this is not to victim shame or Mm -hmm. anything, but it makes sense that there would be moments where, um, have you read my grandmother's hands? I've read most of it. So they refer to brown bodies Mm -hmm. and blue bodies being law enforcement, Mm -hmm. right? And trauma and triggers and trauma responses Mm -hmm. and fight or flight is happening in both of those nervous systems. Absolutely. And those two nervous systems, they're... Prefrontal cortex is offline. Oh yeah, like, you flip your lid immediately. Yeah, <laughs> you are. Your lid is flipped. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to Lauren Gogarty's episode. We go all over the flipped lid theory, um, or what that means, not theory. But anywho, um, now we just have trauma responses playing mm-hmm. out, and so to have somebody who is trauma trained mm-hmm. and know what is happening and has a nervous system that is you know, a nervous system nonetheless and can be traumatized as well, but at least can go into that with that much more knowledge seems to you or I like Mm a duh, like, yeah, why isn't this happening? Well, it's like meet clients where they're at always, but it's really hard to meet someone where they're at when you're also triggered because like your sole focus is on protecting the self. Like I have to protect me in this moment. And as a therapist, I can definitely say there have been times I'm like, oh, I need to take a step back. Like, I'm not going to be a good clinician with this client because I am being triggered. Mm-hmm. And there's room for that and space for that. But that's also my training to be aware of that and to notice that and to recognize that and say, you know what? Like, this is not a good fit right now in this moment. Like, I need that space. And it's like, obviously, you don't do that in the middle of the session. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're <laughs> what done. you're saying <laughs> you're right saying- now? <laughs> what you're saying is way too much for me. I got to go. No, it's like, after the session or like in like a situation, you're like, you know what? I have to take a step back. I have to put up some of my own walls and like work on protecting me simultaneously. And that's healthy. And I think it's really hard in a lot of situations um, with a lot of first responders because that's not necessarily part of training. Yeah. And that's something like a lot of different agencies nationally I've seen now are doing that and implementing that training. Officers are getting mental health training. And that's one of the things they want you to focus on is like, what am I seeing? But also like, what am I seeing in me right now? Like, why am I so fearful of this person? Like, what about this is like making me feel like I have to like grab my gun the whole time. Right. And obviously that is part of their training to like, they're not, officers aren't called out always to like, or like firefighters, like the cat in the tree or like someone who just needs like help, like crossing the street. It is, it's scary. It's like, I've been on calls where I was like, wow, all of our lives like could be in danger right now. Yeah. And let's be really, really careful with our next move. But it also helps to have that perspective. I'm like, and like have multiple different people like saying like, this is my training. Like I'm here to do this. And like what I could do with my training say, you know what? Like, I think we need to be like really, really safe with this and like kind of tiptoe around and like, this is the kind of intervention I'm going to have. And if, like something goes wrong. I'm expecting you guys to have my back. Uh, yeah. but like, <laughs> you got my six, right? Yeah. But like, I have to be really careful right now with the way I go about doing things. Like, cause I have worked with clients who are homicidal, who have weapons. 
And I'm like, but it, like, the way I intervene is vastly different, right? Because I'm coming about it like, I don't have any weapons. Like, the only way I could probably survive is running. <laughs> so, like, I'm ready to run. Bobbing and weaving. Yeah. But at the end, like, coming in and just being like, you know what? Like, I'm here to help you, like, de-escalate and, like, lower your trauma response and work within that framework. It's, like, you know that modeling, right? Modeling framework when you're working with clients. Like, sometimes they start to get elevated and you're watching their nervous system kind of response. You take a really deep breath. And then they kind of watch you, whether Mm -hmm. they know it or not, and they start doing that as well. That's something that I've seen clinicians have phenomenal success with is they will go and they're like, oh, I know you're reactive. How can I decrease your reactivity? And I would love for like all parties to have training, but I think it would be a lot of training. Like we go through so much fucking training. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So like it's good to have divided parties, right? Like it's good to have people who do a specific job. Absolutely. So when you are going in and I know you're talking about mirror neurons and modeling and using our nervous system to regulate somebody else's, you get that call that somebody is homicidal, Mm -hmm. potentially dangerous. And you have full faith in the people that I want to use the word deploy. I don't know if that's the (laughs) right word. You deployed with your team, right? What are, with your training and your understanding Mm -hmm. of trauma and your understanding of de-escalation, what do you do in that moment with that client? It depends. Um, it, I mean, truly it kind of depends, right? Every situation is so vastly different. Um, my, I guess like I just like as a trauma-informed therapist, I'm like, I know like a, like things could trigger you, right? And if I come in and I'm like hot and ready to go and like I'm speaking really quickly, which I do a lot. So I have to be very mindful. Yeah, we're actually going to slow down this yeah. podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am like I speak so rapidly that like I could check off that symptom on a lot of the checklists. <laughs> so I know I'm very aware. So I do. I come in. I'm really slow. Like I'm very like calm. I don't make grand gestures. Like I keep like I'm make sure my hands are visible, stuff like that. Things that could trigger someone who like people feel like backed into a corner. And so mm-hmm. they can make decisions that they wouldn't normally make. So I try and give them every opportunity to not make that decision. So you come in and you're like, I understand this is a lot. And like most people, lights and sirens overwhelms the nervous system entirely. Like uh, overwhelms mine. So much and fucking I would stimuli. Like to think <laughs> that I am like healthy in this yeah. moment. And I hear sirens. Palms are sweaty. Yeah. What is it? Mom's spaghetti. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Knees I'm, like, yeah. I'm like, okay, Lindsay, you're at 10 and 2. Yeah. You're not doing anything wrong. Yeah, that's fucking well, traumatizing. Like, when do you ever hear light or see and hear lights and sirens and think, oh, thank God. Like, it's our first response is like something bad's happening. And that's scary. Like, that is triggering. And so when you're on the receiving end and you need those lights and sirens, yeah, it's, sometimes it can be a relief. But if you are not like you're not wanting that response or you thought you needed it, but weren't fully aware of like your nervous system in that moment, which no one is when they're in crisis, right? Like you would be a master clinician. Like (laughs) if you were aware of your body response in a fucking crisis, it doesn't happen. And that's okay. That's super normal. Like it's just not how our brains work, right? Flip lid, like you're responding to what you need to respond to. And so I do everything I can. So specifically with the client where I, was with them. I actually had a four and a half hour wait for officer response with the client who was like expressing homicidal ideation and had a weapon. And I was just like, all right, we're just going to sit and deescalate, build rapport. Like, let's get to know one another. Um, hopefully I'm not your target. <laughs> like yeah. hopefully you, ha- I was in that moment, which super morbid and dark was like, hopefully it's a fixed target so I can intervene and not have it be me. Like if it's a fluid target, I might be in trouble, but it actually worked. Like we sat there. We got to know each other. We walked incredibly fast in the Texas heat. I'm dripping sweat, but I was like, this is what you need to do. You need to move. Like, let's do this. Eventually, we ended up sitting on a curb until the officers got there. Um, and that's kind of like how like crisis should like should be responded to. It's not like, oh my God, you have a weapon. You're a danger. It's like, I mean, you could have a weapon, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to use it. Mm-hmm. And doesn't mean you're going to use it on me, right? But like, if I see a weapon, I instantly think, oh my God, you're going to attack me. It creates a different trauma response for me. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just like 
you play to the situation, but also know like there have been times when I was like, yeah, I'm not safe. I'm going to take four steps back <laughs> and maybe four more and maybe like 10 more because every step is like, oh, this is probably not a good call for me. Right. Um, but that's such a rare occurrence. So rare, especially on mental health calls, right? More often than not, like people experiencing mental health issues are more at risk of like hurting themselves or being hurt by almost anyone else in society than hurting others. Why is that? I think it's, it could be due to like the symptoms of the mental illness primarily, um, which I mean, something like depression, if you're having suicidal ideation, you might be at risk of harming yourself. But say like you're experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia, like early onset, you don't know what's going on. Your reality is distorted. You're not fully aware of everything going on around you. And like you're having maybe delusional thought content. And so you're thinking things that like, say you're perceiving someone as like the devil, which I've worked with clients like that. They're like, their reality is not the same. They know someone's trying to harm them. They believe it from their heart of hearts. And I'm never going to like, you're never going to be able to tell someone like, that's not true. That's not reality. Cause that's how their reality is presenting to them. And so it's really hard for them to understand like simple tasks and commands, right? Like I'm not going to orient them to reality. If I say like, whoa, 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 don't charge me. They're like not hearing any of that. And so for an officer, like someone else to give a command, just like completely over their head. And so it does make them at risk because they can't follow orders. Like we all know if we get pulled over by the cops, like can't turn off the car, put your hands on the steering wheel. If you're like seeing shit and like believe that like you're being chased by demons, like everything around you, you're not going to have your hands on the wheel. You're going to be trying to jump out of the car. You might think that someone's trying to attack you through the window. It's going to be f- hard to follow those orders. So instantly you're going to look like a threat to whoever's responding. Mm-hmm. Despite like the person not understanding that they're not actually a threat. Mm-hmm. And what do you say, and you might not have an answer to this, and it could be a entirely separate podcast in itself, <laughs> but we're talking so much about the person who is needing help, right? Mm-hmm. We keep saying the client. That's just like yeah. so our language. But what do you say for, for those first responders? Oh, gosh. I find a support group, first of all. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. like, you need one. Um, no, I have worked a lot with them. And actually, probably one of my favorite things about working with first responders, a lot of them were very, very open to a lot of like skills and like there was a couple times where I would see the same responders in the field and they'd be like, yo, I used that thing that you did. <laughs> like that thing you taught me. <laughs> I'm like, cool. Like, that's amazing. That's wonderful. Um, because I know their training is so different than ours. And I think it's one, I really think on like a very deep level that all first responders should be highly encouraged like to utilize mental health services because just the constant stress on your nervous system can be overwhelming. Like whether or not you're seeing like shit go down, your body's ready for shit to go down. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot just to carry all the time. And so you need an outlet. And that's why we see like really high rates of like substance use or yeah. like PTSD or like sleep disorders, stuff like that. Because it's really hard to get rid of all of that on your own. Yeah. And like... It's, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's definitely a very difficult thing to do. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, when you, I think about firefighters, Mm -hmm. right? And like, I was talking to my buddy the other day and I was like, what a life, right? Like two days of work, four days off, like must be nice. And then I start thinking, you know, I'm totally just giving Mm -hmm. him shit. And then I start thinking about the implications of like, if someone wakes me up, at 2.30 in the morning, I'm pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I am pissed. And right. my sleep cycle is fucked up and my day is to shit. And it's like, okay, you do that for 48 hours at a time. Yeah. So you start thinking about sleep disorders. Mm-hmm. Then you start thinking about, okay, and the calls you're getting can be heinous. The yeah. scenes that you walk into, the things that you're experiencing. And so, you know, I, I used this quote the other day. I love Gabor Mate in mm-hmm. his work. And he talks. Is it The Realm of Hungry Ghosts? Is yes. That his, yeah. He wrote The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which is fantastic. And I think puts addiction and mental health in such mm-hmm. a different paradigm and framework for people to, to understand and digest. But he says, um, 
addiction was never the problem. Mm-hmm. Addiction was the person's attempt at solving a mm-hmm. problem. And I think that's so true for first responders when we yeah. talk about increased substance use, when we talk about these different traumas and our bodies holding on to them, sometimes numbing out is what kept you alive. Yeah. It's that coping skill, right? Like it's not the healthiest coping skill, but it's what's keeping you around. And so what's working once doesn't always work forever. And that's where you see like the substance use disorder diagnosis, but it could be like stopped really early on. But there's, from what I saw, there's not a lot of encouragement within those communities to go seek help until it's like too late until you're seeing like increased rates of like domestic violence in the home or like like really gnarly flashbacks, like increased substance use, like haven't slept in days or just being like the only place you can really release a lot of that excess energy is at work. So you're working extreme hours to the point of like complete burnout and exhaustion, but that's like the only place you feel sane and healthy. Right. And so it should, like, I believe that there could be a really integrated system with like mental health and first responders. And I think it might be leaning that way eventually, but I, think it has a long way to go. (laughs) Yeah. I remember my, uh, an ex-partner was in the military. Mm -hmm. And when he was talking to me about things, I was like, hey, like, obviously I love you. Mm -hmm. I'm here to support you. At the end of the day, I'm your partner. I'm not your, I'm not your counselor. Yeah. And let's find you help. Let's find you someone to talk to about these things. And the fear of if it gets to my higher ups Mm -hmm. that I went to counseling, I'm pulled off of these, you know, deployments. I, my job's at stake. These different things are happening. And so there's this wild, wild amount of shame when it comes to mental health. Yeah. The shame, there's such a massive stigma, right? Because if you need mental health care, that means you're crazy. Clearly, obviously. Yeah. Clearly, that's like the only answer. (laughs) If you're seeing a therapist, you're crazy. And that means you can't do your job. Like you're scary to the community, all these things. When in reality, like mental health should be the same as like getting a physical. Like you need a checkup every so often. You're putting your body under these really extreme conditions. Like there's a lot of duress and yeah, you get checked out every once in a while. Like I know they implement that. They want you to see doctors. Same with like clinicians. It's like, oh, yeah, like six months ago, we checked in and you said you were sleeping like this. Oh, wow. You're sleeping two hours a night now. That's a drastic difference. Let's talk about it. Little stuff like that, I feel like could like weed out like a lot of these massive like breakdowns and stuff like what everyone's so afraid of. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be locked away. It's okay. Well, let's prevent that. Yeah. Let's (laughs) do something about it. Let's do some (laughs) prehab before you're in rehab. Absolutely. So when I love giving uh, listeners little tips Mm -hmm. and tricks and guys this is not to tell you that you are on the verge of a mental breakdown (laughs) or that you're going crazy it is rather just to you know take what practices feel Mm -hmm. good and leave what doesn't um when we start to talk about trauma being stored in the body Mm -hmm. and we talk about our nervous systems and regulating them and you know you and I can talk super heady Mm -hmm. about this and geek out but for the lay person what are some practices or things that you could do in your own home with or without a therapist that can help start to regulate that? Um, I mean, everyone, so a lot of people jump to like meditate. I am not a meditation person. It is the most boring thing in the world to me. <laughs> so I steer clear of that. I'm like, and I understand that's not for everyone. So I use a lot of like active engagement in mindfulness activities, things where I'm consciously aware and like grounding my body while also allowing myself to have thoughts and I provide myself with tools to focus my thoughts. So the one that I use in the field, I've used it. I used it at the state hospital with kids. I used it with adults. I used it a ton in crisis work, used it with first responders (laughs) and clients. And I actually find myself using it in the work I do now and myself is um, a mindfulness activity from actually DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, it's a grounding exercise. It's called the five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> I'm sure people have heard of it, but it's truly the easiest one to do anywhere without any tools and really any guidance. You just have to remember it's the five senses. So, and it can be done in any order. It can truly, you can be sitting like in your car, in traffic, 
noticing your body's like upregulating and you're like, I'm so annoyed. I have so much to go. I'm white knuckling yeah. my steering <laughs> wheel. Like, this I'm guy so just fucking angry. cut me off. <laughs> like, I, I don't have any do experience this. with that. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I've never exactly. felt like, that way. You're like just waiting. You're like, why? Like, or just little stuff. Like sometimes I'm sitting there and I notice my shoulders like in my ears. And I'm like, my hands are clenched. I'm like, what the fuck is happening to my body right now? <laughs> like, oh, I guess I need to check in. <laughs> but um, the five, four, three, two, one, we can walk through it, or I could just give you like a basic. Walk like... me through it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, I'm so... getting free therapy right now, guys. That's the whole so, reason I started a podcast. I will do like so. There's like a more intensive version that I use specifically with people who are like kind of like choked up and struggling to breathe. Um, which is like I'll give you the elaborate version, and then everyone can break it down to the most like tiny itty bitty parts they want to but um so I would come in I'd be like all right like we're sitting there imagine you're like kind of full-blown like <laughs> reactive and I'd be like okay can you put your feet on the ground for me then like if possible sometimes it's not I will start by saying like can you take a deep breath and if that's okay that's okay sometimes I get a hard no look at me like I'm losing my mind to ask someone to breathe <laughs> and so I'm like okay don't tell me to breathe <laughs> exactly. my own breath <laughs> exactly I'm like all right so we're not there yet and I'll just like jump right in won't even explain what I'm doing like okay can you name five things you can see right now and whether they're comfortable saying it out loud or in their head they can give me a nod when they're done they name five things and I go okay and I'll model taking a deep breath in if I have a something to drink in front of me I'll take a sip of it and kind of watch them like look to me for what's next And they'll be like okay what are four things that you can touch if they're comfortable I'll have them physically touch it and go through it that way. Another really deep breath. Another gulp of water. Model kind of holding it. Swallowing it. And I'm like, okay, what are three things you can hear? They like kind of look around. More often than not, they say my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> they notice me. And then I'm like, okay. So then really, I'll like really try and model almost like exaggerated. A really deep like belly breath. I'm like, okay. Sometimes people are annoyed. Sometimes they kind of lose track. You kind of guide them back. And then I'm like, okay, name two things you can smell, which is always the one that people are like, what? <laughs> and so I'm like, really deep breath. So like that breathing I'm doing, like, follow me. Let's breathe it in. And they go, okay. Kind of take a pause. Go, now what are you tasting right now? And they're like, what? <laughs> they're yeah. like, Notice in your mouth. Like, do you taste toothpaste? What's the last thing you ate? Do you have no flavor in your mouth? If they're drinking I'm like, something. shit, I just ate fish tacos <laughs> and this is kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I'm aware that I ate something, right? And then we'll breathe. We'll kind of check back in. Depending on the situation, um, there's more redirection than others. More often than not, if you jump right in, having people start to become aware of their body in that moment, um, particularly if you're using a drink, using something like ice water, helps regulate your nervous system, especially the colds, helps kind of bring you back. It's also really hard to like hyperventilate if you're trying to drink something because <laughs> you'll choke. <laughs> so it kind of works in multiple ways. It re Your body redirects, right? And a lot of times, at least in my experience, I've seen that if our body is reacting in a certain way, it's like it can kind of take off on its own. So whether or not our mind is like maybe our mind triggered it, but then our body is kind of doing its own thing and we just can't bring it back. And so bringing it back, using that grounding exercise, being aware, like, what am I touching? Oh, like I was dissociating. I'm mm -hmm. sitting in a fucking car right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm in traffic. Oh, my God. Like being aware, like, oh, my foot is on the brake. Like, oh, I do have water in my car. You know what? Like maybe I need to get my car cleaned. It kind of smells like beach dog. Like, <laughs> like that yeah. kind of like, that's what we're seeing. Like that's what we're smelling. Like, oh, that car in front of me that cut me off. Like what an asshole. Oh, they have like a really funny bumper sticker. Maybe they're not such an asshole. Like, like what am I doing with my actual body and like getting out of my head? Like, because our thoughts and our body as connected as we like to believe them to be, like sometimes they do just take off in opposite directions and we are not aware like how far separated they are. And so I really like that mindfulness one um, just because then you're like, oh, I have to focus on something mm -hmm. outside of like, say I'm like ruminating super hard. Like I have to stop for a second. And like every time I try and go back to it, I'm like, wait, wait, you didn't name the third thing that you could smell. Like I need to know that thing. So you keep bringing it back. You keep bringing it back to your like self center um, 
again, I like feet on the ground for that reason. Cause it kind of plants you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like the woo woo, like hippie shit that I love. Let's <laughs> go woo woo. And You're so on get like, psyched. <laughs> you know it. And so like, just because it is, it's a very grounding experience to like feel like the planet under your feet, like get to a place where you like, don't feel like you're completely out of control, like floating off into space. Um, so that's typically my go-to and I do use it in every, every situation with every age group. It's totally usable with like every single like mental health diagnosis. Um, a little bit harder, like when you start getting into like psychosis, Mm -hmm. but it is still doable. Just requires sometimes a lot of redirection. (laughs) What do you taste? Purple. Exactly. (laughs) You're like, oh, you have synesthesia too. Wonderful. (laughs) You're like, that's something new to work with. (laughs) So I'm like, those are just like kind of like that one's like doable everywhere you go. Like, I don't know if someone's done that already on your show and like bringing you back. (laughs) They, it's funny because I literally had a client earlier today and Mm -hmm. did that with them and like you're saying you can do it in this moment Mm -hmm. right now I need to be in my body um you can also you know go even further with it and you can Mm -hmm. go back to that really decadent dessert experience Mm -hmm. that you had and you can sit there and relive it and take these five senses Mm -hmm. and thank that spot inside of yourself for allowing you to have that experience, right? Mm -hmm. That safe, yummy, warm place. I don't really like to use the word safe place because some people don't have that, right? Yeah. But you have those experiences in you. And so for listeners, I can't speak highly enough of five, four, three, two, one. I use it just as often. It sounds (laughs) like Shay uses it personally as I do with my clients. Um, and again, you can get really grand with it or really dial it into something small. So, but you are the first one on the show to share it. And okay. like, I've been waiting for that. <laughs> okay. I'm like, please, somebody bring it up. Yeah. Um, epic. So if people want to see what you're doing, keep up with you, get involved with your work, all the things that are going on, how do they contact you? Where do they go? A fun question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I should probably make that available to people I don't know if I have that right now I'm gonna start it I'll give you like you can like put it in like the caption or something once I figure that out perfect (laughs) you can I mean I do have research out there it's more so in grief and loss um I like I don't know little stuff like LinkedIn probably just I'll find a way for people to contact me (laughs) yeah there will be a way clearly this is like the only podcast I've ever done (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she's coming back because I don't know about you guys I loved every second of this show it's hard for me to believe that we've been talking for an hour yeah. um it kind of I know the first podcast I ever did I like blacked out and I, I am got pretty done. sure I blacked out the whole first half it's like <laughs> did you understand a word I said because I think it was so pressured that like I didn't even hear a word I said <laughs> we should have five four three two one at oh, like the sure. 20 minute mark no you did yeah. absolutely great I loved every second of it I'm super super intrigued Fun fact, listeners, we started this episode with like, we're going to talk about research on grief and loss. We did not even touch on that. So I'm super excited to have you back. Shay, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.